It's Wednesday, February 6th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump delivered his second State of the Union and covered a lot of ground. He started by calling for unity in an effort to win for our country, listed some of his economic victories, made another plea for the border wall, and presented some new legislative agenda items. There were moments of bipartisan applause, some groans, and the crowd even sang happy birthday. Caitlin Emma, reporter at Politico, joins us to break it all down. Next, we continue our conversation with Caitlin to talk about the Democratic response delivered by Stacey Abrams. Her star will continue to rise after delivering the response, setting her up as a future leader of the Democratic Party. And while she hit on many of the issues Democrats care about, will either speech move the needle of public opinion? Finally, read with caution. Most health cures you hear about in the news aren't always ready for humans, just yet. Last week, an article got a lot of traction touting a possible cure to cancer within the year. While a possible breakthrough could be on the horizon, it's not ready yet to test on humans. Claire Maldarelli, associate editor at Popular Science, joins us to talk about the lengthy process of developing a drug to successfully treat a disease. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. After 24 months, of rapid progress. Our economy is the envy of the world. Our military is the most powerful on Earth by far. America is again winning each and every day. Members of Congress, the state of our union is strong. Joining us now is Caitlin Emma, reporter for Politico. So it was the big State of the Union speech that got delayed. We were waiting for it. Everybody was on pins and needles, really waiting to see how the president would really tackle all of the issues facing the country right now. He did say that the State of the Union is strong. A big theme was unity and country. He started off by saying we have to govern not as two parties but as one nation, and this, this is an agenda for the American people. So he started with that and uh, then broke off into several policy points. I, I think overall, the president did a very good job. He was calm and confident, measured, very few jabs towards the opposition. But, you know, he still did mention stuff about like the Mueller probe saying, you know, we have to stop with these partisan investigations. Let's start there. What is your overall feeling for the speech? So this is one of the things that we always look for when the president is giving a major speech. It's basically who's going to show up. Is it teleprompter Trump or is it typical off-grip incendiary rhetoric Trump? So I think what we definitely saw, what was expected, the president sticking to a speech that was crafted by his advisors, the president sticking to the teleprompter. I mean, there are a few moments of levity where he sort of veered off script. For example, at one point, a number of women who've been elected to the House were wearing white to sort of honor suffragettes. He sort of talked about women and employment, and they stood up and applauded because they've all been elected to Congress in historic numbers. And that was this fun moment. But for the most part, he stuck to this message of unity, which is remarkable at the moment. 
against the backdrop of what has been a really ugly partisan moment. Uh, we are you know, less than two weeks away from a quarter of the government running out of funding again. Lawmakers are working to secure a border security deal and come up with a spending package that keeps a quarter of the government open. And the president has said this is a waste of time. He said House Speaker Pelosi is wasting her time if she's not building a wall. So the message that he was essentially pushing of unity is very out of sync with reality, if that makes sense. Yeah, he started the speech with listing a lot of the accomplishments. You know, in just two years, we've had this great economic boom, 5.3 million new jobs, low unemployment, all sorts of stuff. And it's true. The the economy is booming, although the Democrats had a, a different vision of what's been going on with the economy. Then he moved on to bipartisan actions that they've taken, the opioid crisis, dealing with the opioid crisis, the farm bill, criminal justice reform, the First Step Act. You know, listing all these things that we've can get along with that we've proven we can do. And then he moved on to the big topic. We need to confront this urgent national crisis at the border. This is the next step for the bipartisanship. Hopefully we can get something going. And you're right. He he is a contradiction of messages a lot of times. Very on script here. Who knows what will happen in the days following? There's still, uh, as you said, uh, there's probably like 10 days left before we go through this all over again, a possible government shutdown. But he moved on to the the crisis at the border, what's going on there. And uh, I think for many times that he's tried to make this case, he did take that measured tone, just kind of stuck to the script. And I, I think uh, a lot more people are more willing to listen to him when he's delivering a message that way than, you know, attacking everybody. Although there were audible groans from the crowd when he started mentioning the caravans and things like that. Right. There was this moment during the speech where he mentioned, you know, so-called caravans of migrants approaching the U.S., you know, many of them who in reality are, are seeking asylum. And it did elicit some boos from Democrats. And you could see Nancy Pelosi's telling them, which I thought was kind of noteworthy, telling them to not boo, to yeah. sort of be quiet. You know, we're in a very delicate situation right now in these discussions over border security. I mean, like I said, the president has said these talks are a waste of time. While Democrats seem some somewhat open to talking about money for fencing, not necessarily a concrete wall. But aside from that, I don't think anything he said really advances some of these negotiations to help him get his wall or keep the government open in, in less than two weeks. I think he made it very clear, you know, by inviting guests to the State of the Union who, uh, you know, suffered a loss in their family at the hands of, you know, what he is saying is somebody who crossed over the border illegally and committed murder. I think he's making a very clear point that we need a wall. Again, I don't know that that advances the right. negotiations that much, but there were other bipartisan moments in terms of policy that came up. I think a lot of folks were listening to hear what he would say on infrastructure and some sort of legislative spending package on infrastructure. He didn't offer very many details, but he did say that was a priority. That's a potential point of basically consensus between right. the White House and Congress. So and, well, and I guess it remains to be seen what details they put forth if there is actual momentum around something like that. And that did uh, receive, that moment did receive when he spoke about infrastructure, uh, applause and standing ovation from both parties. It was something that they could gain ground on. He did also move on to other legislative agendas uh, saying that he wants to eliminate HIV within right. 10 years. I guess the transmission of HIV within 10 years, fight childhood cancer, uh, paid family leave, got a big applause from a lot of people. 
Uh, and he did also say that he wants Congress to work on uh, eliminating late-term abortions. There was no Democratic applause at that point. He Further on, he moved into his foreign policy. He mentioned Venezuela. He mentioned China and tariffs. And he mentioned North Korea. I think overall, he had a, a very good flow, a good plan of how to lay out the the speech. And as we've been saying, the really, it all comes after this. What happens after? Who is going to stick to their word? And will there be this kind of sense of, can we work together? Can we get stuff achieved? Right. And if um, history is really any indication, we've seen the president give uh, two, his first State of the Union speech wasn't actually a State of the Union. It was sort of an address to Congress. But last year, we saw a State of the Union speech. This year, we're seeing the speech. And like I said at the onset, there is sort of a difference between President Trump when he's speaking via teleprompter, right. via a speech that his advisors have crafted for weeks and months versus what he is actually thinking and saying. And if history is any indication, I think we can expect to see a lot of that rhetoric change very quickly, just because he sounded polished like there was that policy agenda. I mean, things can change with this White House at the drop of the hat. Just earlier, he was knocking Democrats on their border security negotiations, trying to satisfy him in terms of finding funding for some sort of barrier along the U.S.-Mexico border. So I think we can expect to see a return to that. But on some of those points that he made, like you mentioned, the pledge to address HIV issues, infrastructure childhood cancer. Some of these issues, I think, definitely did earn bipartisan support, and they will going forward. Criminal justice was another big one. That received support from both sides. Right. That a big criminal justice package earlier that, like, I believe, late last year was passed with bipartisan support. So those issues definitely do get support from both sides of the aisle. But in terms of keeping a quarter of the government open in less than two weeks and what happens with that, I think still remains to be seen. I just need to throw this in there. I think the most lighted hearted moment of the whole thing was when everybody sang happy birthday to Judah Samet, one of the survivors of the Tree of Life synagogue attack. He's also a Holocaust survivor. I don't think that's ever happened during a State of the Union. So that was a kind of funny moment. Let's talk about the uh, Democratic response to the State of the Union done by Stacey Abrams. She's a former gubernatorial candidate in Georgia. Even as I am very disappointed by the president's approach to our problems, I still don't want him to fail. But we need him to tell the truth and to respect his duties and respect the extraordinary diversity that defines America. Our progress has always been found in the refuge, in the basic instinct of the American experiment to do right by our people. A lot of people are saying she's probably going to end up running for Senate in 2020. How do you feel she did? I think Stacey Abrams delivered the exact response that Democrats were looking for. And she's on a lighter note, beat this State of the Union rebuttal curse, if you will, where, you know, Marco Rubio took that long drink of water and Joe Kennedy (laughs) had like a weird amount of chapstick on his lips. She delivered a really polished speech that hit on all of these high notes about issues that are close to the Democratic Party and issues that will be close to Democrats, you know, moving forward. I think it speaks to a lot about her political future. It did feel almost like a campaign right. speech. Right? Oh, yeah, like right, at the, right at the beginning. <laughs> exactly. I totally agree that I think she hit on all the Democratic points and was very successful in that way. It's hard to compete with all the pomp and circumstance and the energy of the actual state of the union being in the house chamber. It's hard to compete with that, but she talked about education. She talked about gun safety. She talked about um, 
the economy in a different way. Plants are closing because of tax cuts. Farmers are in trouble because of the trade war. Truckers have to buy their own trucks because the companies aren't supplying that. Uh, Immigration, uh, you're caging children. And a compassionate border is not an open border. She talked about climate change briefly. All these moments are just briefly touched on, but these are the important things, the important issues for Democrats and a differentiating point between what they want and what the president wants. So I think on her part, she did a great job. Um, But again, you know, (laughs) it's always the conversation that happens after this. Do either of these speeches move the needle for anybody? It's really hard to say. Caitlin, Emma, reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. They've claimed to have isolated peptides or these tiny strings of amino acids that would target and destroy cancer cells without harming healthy cells. Now, that sounds really, really cool, but when you look a little deeper into where they are actually in their stages, all they've done is some early trials in mice. Joining us now is Claire Maldarelli, associate editor at Popular Science. Last week, there was a big article posted in the Jerusalem Post that said within a year's time, scientists will have a cure for cancer. And I just remember seeing it getting picked up all over the place. Everybody's saying, see, I told you this is coming. It's going to happen pretty soon. But mm-hmm. most of these health cures that we read about a lot of times in the news really aren't ready for prime time. They're not ready to be used in humans or rolled out on a large scale. A lot of these take the form of academic papers saying we're nearing towards a breakthrough or something like that, which was kind of the case with this story. Let's start there real quick. Explain to us what happened in that Jerusalem Post story, and then we'll go into the broader aspect of how hard it is to develop a drug successfully and roll it out to be used by uh, humans. Obviously, no one in the world, no scientists are close that close to finding a cure for all cancers, even if one is ever found. But this was based on an Israeli biotech company called AEBI. And what they have done is they've claimed to have isolated peptides or these tiny strings of amino acids that would target and destroy cancer cells without harming healthy cells. Now, that sounds really, really cool. But when you look a little deeper into where they are actually in their stages, all they've done is some early trials in mice. So nothing in humans, and all they've gotten to is seeing if the treatment has worked in mice. And so obviously they have a long way to go before we can even say if this is viable for humans, let alone if it actually helps cure cancer. Yeah, case in point, even uh, some of that, what they're working on is based off of research from uh, last year's Nobel Prize winner, Jim Allison, and another colleague that were working on this type of cancer research specifically. Just to prove the point, I mean, the stuff that Jim Allison was working on, uh, his breakthroughs were like in the 90s. And then it took like 10 years before Keytruda came out, which was based off of some of that research. And it wasn't until last year that he got the Nobel Prize for making those breakthroughs. So these are long processes, even though they're making those discoveries and finding, you know, little ways to fight cancer or other diseases. This kind of applies across the board. It's usually just a first stepping stone and it takes a long time. So a lot of times they go public, they'll push out these studies. And the first thing that happens is a peer review process. Obviously, um, Jim Allison did and a lot of other scientists who sort of work in these academic settings. They'll publish right away or, you know, pretty soon after they've discovered something, they'll publish into academic journals. And so during that process to 
get yourself into, to get your research into an academic journal, it has to be reviewed by other scientists who also work in that field. And so that's really important because it puts your research up to the test and other researchers who know the topic are able to comment on it and make sure that it's sound and that your research studies were sound before it gets published in these journals. And so this case in particular, these researchers hadn't yet published their research in an academic journal. So all we're going off of is what they're claiming to have done. And then let's step into the pharmaceutical development of this, because this is very interesting. Mm -hmm. And this is where the process really takes a long time. So let's say this Israeli startup, they have their stuff. They're going to start really developing it and taking it down the line, ultimately trying to get FDA approval. Where do they start and how does they progress throughout it? back even if we were to go to the beginning of when they first discovered that these might be a viable treatment for cancer, the first thing that researchers would do is do these things called in vitro studies where you take cells where cancer cells are just normal cells and put them in a petri dish and then use this treatment on them and you sort of see what happens to see if you get the desired effect that you want. And if that's successful, then you move on to in vivo trials, which are animal studies, and usually they use mice and they'll do it in these mice, and these mice are under very controlled conditions, so researchers are able to know exactly what's happening, and there's no sort of surprises in terms of any other diseases that are in these mice or anything like that. And if that's successful, then they move on to clinical trials, and that's where human test subjects get involved. But it takes a long time to get through these in vitro and these in vivo studies or trials, and most drugs don't even make it through those trials. Right. And that's as far as that Israeli startup has gotten um, with uh, animal models. They haven't progressed beyond that, but this would be the next crucial phase, which would be the clinical trials. It's just so hard for these things to get through. About one third of all drugs tested on animals ever make it to phase one of clinical trials. And beyond that, Mm -hmm. 8% of those that make it to the phase one are eventually approved by the FDA. So it's a long process. It's a difficult process that takes many years. And each stage of the clinical trials takes a long time also. Uh, You know, a phase one thing is small, 20 to 100 people, and it could last Mm -hmm. for a few weeks or so. But after that, then things start taking up years of time. Exactly. And while 70% of drugs that enter phase one move on to the second round of testing, a much smaller percentage make it all the way through phase two and phase three and actually make it to the FDA to get final testing. And it's those phase two and phase three trials that are actually really crucial because phase one is essentially, as you said, just really small. And it's really looking to make sure that a drug doesn't really harm a person. So it's not extremely dangerous to take, but it doesn't actually look at efficacy, meaning whether it actually treats the condition or ailment it's meant to treat. It just sort of makes sure that it doesn't kill you, so to speak. And then phase two is really crucial because it starts looking at efficacy. And then phase three takes a lot of more patients and it also compares it to other treatments that are currently available and tries to determine if this treatment is better than those other treatments. And then also it looks at sort of adverse effects. So even if a drug is actually very beneficial if it has tremendous adverse effects, it wouldn't be viable. So there's just so many things to consider with these drugs that having this blanket statement that the Jerusalem Post and other media outlets put out that will have a cancer treatment 
cure within a year is just completely unfounded. And it's, it's hard for readers to understand because you read that and everybody wants a cancer cure. Right. It's tempting to be lulled by that, but we have to really look at look at the process long term. Claire Maldarelli, Associate Editor of Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>